0: So, you want to get out your sermon outline, it says the feasts of the Lord on it, I hope. And uh, we are in Exodus 23, as we fly through this Old Testament book. So this is one of those passages that you would probably skip over just sort of tells you some things going on. It's got some rules, some requirements, uh, some laws, and you say, okay, that's good, and let's move on to the good stuff. And uh, hopefully I'll convince you today that this is part of the good stuff. So if you turn with me to Exodus 23, we're going to read verses 10 through 19 uh, this morning. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I'm sure you all understand everything there. But it is God's word, and it does have meaning for us. And whenever we read something that seems a little different or odd, we always have to ask, what does God want us to know? Why did he put it here? And so we need to ask those questions this morning. Before we get into it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we always need it. We need to be reminded of what makes God great. We need the glory of the Lord. We need to be reminded that Exodus isn't just history, but is a redemption story. And we need to be reminded today that these feasts aren't just a party, but a celebration of our salvation. Thank you that Exodus points us to our Redeemer. We need the salvation he offers. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, this week, Deb Farrow told me I don't talk about baseball enough. (laughs) So consider this a makeup introduction. Actually, a former professor of spiritual formation at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Dr. Chuck DeGrope, he writes about the beginning of his career as a Christian counselor. And uh, when he was just starting out and getting credentialed, He was required to serve first as a clinical intern, which is a pretty typical medical practice. And uh, one of his first clients was a man twice his age. He was only 27 at the time and feeling pretty inadequate. And after about the third session, his client began talking about his father, which is not an uncommon conversation in counseling. Now, somewhere along the way, and as a A father and a grandfather, I think I can get away with saying this. But somewhere along the way, most fathers discover, however unintentional, that they've become a contributor to the grand story of parental disappointment. Which we figure out about the time the word dad becomes a multisyllabic word. It's usually accompanied by eye rolling. But in this case, it was becoming clear there was one particular part of this man's relationship with his father that haunted him more than any other. He said, My dad and I never played catch, he was always too busy. Sometimes I'd leave my glove in a conspicuous place, like on his desk, hoping he might see it and get the message. And as the client reflected on this, he began asking some pretty big questions. Is this normal? Am I crazy? Do you understand how hurt I am? And puzzled, Chuck writes that he decided to simply continue being a loving, compassionate presence during their counseling sessions. And then the baseball playoffs started. And this client rooted for the Yankees. And they were in the playoffs that year with a good chance to go all the way. And this would have been around the late 90s, and the Yankees had a pretty good run back then. And this man recalled the glory days of Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, a time when every little boy wanted to play baseball at Yankee Stadium. And finally, this man looked down at the carpet and he squeezed his hands together so tightly Chuck could see the blood constricting in his fingers. And still looking down, he said, Chuck, all I wanted was for him to throw me grounders and fly balls. Why wouldn't he play with me? Chuck said, I don't know. But he asked the man to look up for a moment. The man looked up, his eyes were already filling with tears. Chuck said I do know this I've come to enjoy these times with you more than you know and I would love to play catch with you and he said at that moment the dam broke and the tears just flowed out in a torrent he said it was an awesome sacred moment before him sat a man twice his age and yet a little boy an influential businessman, but a rejected child. And in that instant, Chuck says, he discovered the power of relationship. He discovered the power of covenant love. Now, Scripture teaches about covenant love in a number of ways, in a number of places, and it teaches us that Covenant love is based on commitments and it's based on promises. It's one of the reasons God uses a marriage as one of his primary analogies to his relationship with his people. Marriage is a covenant based on commitments and promises. And God's covenant love functions the same way because God is a covenant maker. Over and over again, God declares, Exodus uh, 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God has made clear that he values love and faithfulness. He will not settle for mere behavioral conformity or heartless obedience. Covenant love defines God's relationship with his people. Now remember, the people that God is is embracing here in Exodus uh, with this covenant love are people who are enslaved and broken and bruised and battered. It's a group of people who must have had a lot of why questions. But because of his great love for them, because of his covenant love for them, God rescued them, God freed them, God saved them, God delivered them. And God explains all that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. There we read, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That sets the context for God's law, for God's commandments, for God's rules. In Exodus 21 through 24, often referred to as the book of the covenant, where God sets out laws for his people so that they'll be able to function as a nation. Now, we often look at God's law We look at the commandments as boundaries, as borders, as restrictions, as rules. Don't cross that line or you'll get in trouble. But they weren't perceived that way by the Israelites, at least not at first. Take the fourth commandment, for example, on the Sabbath. It's actually repeated in our text today. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh you shall rest. You have to remember, these people have been slaves In Egypt. They haven't had a day off in 400 years. A day of rest. That sounds wonderful. God truly does love us. They would view it entirely different than we do. You see, we think of it as a Sabbath rule, but to the Israelites, It was a Sabbath mercy. It was a Sabbath mercy. And that should be the first blank there in your outline. Let's go back to verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work. But on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. (coughs) So at first glance, you read this, and it doesn't seem like it has a whole lot to do with mercy. It's about keeping the Sabbath. We associate the Sabbath with worship. However, if we read Exodus 23 carefully, we'll discover it's really about mercy. This first law is for the Sabbath year. <coughs> Excuse me, starting at verse 10. Six years you sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you let it rest. So at the time this law is given, the Israelites are preparing to enter the promised land. It's going to get delayed, but they don't know that yet. And when they arrive, they're supposed to let their fields uh, rest, like fallow, every seventh year. Now, that's simply good agriculture. I know we have so many farmers here, you know all about that, but trust me, that's good agriculture. A good farmer rotates his crops so his fields get a chance to rest. And although the Sabbath rest is good for the land, it's not its primary purpose. The Sabbath is mainly for the people and for the animals who depend on the land for food. In the seventh year, the orchards, fields, vineyards were left to grow on their own, unpruned, unguarded, unharvested. Now, there's some question as to whether the whole land of Israel had rest all at one time or whether it was staggered Uh, field by field, which would seem most beneficial to the poor. However it was timed, the Sabbath year was one of the ways God provided for the hungry and also for the animals. Plenty of food was left for the animals, but even more so, it's especially for the poor, who are free to gather whatever they need. If you remember, back during Advent, we went through the book of Ruth, and that's an important part of that story in Ruth. So like the Sabbath year, the Sabbath day is also intended to bless the poor and the hungry. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word for cease, and it's a day to cease from ordinary work. It's a day of rest for both man and animal. It's really a form of social justice. Sabbath is God's guarantee that workers and livestock would get a day off. So the Sabbath laws teach us about caring for the poor. They teach us actually about caring for creation. Sabbath year reminds us the poor need to eat, and under this biblical workfare system, the poor are expected to gather what they needed from the Sabbath fields. But in order for this system to work, the people with means have to obey God's law by giving their fields a rest. If they don't do that, the poor don't get to eat. And the Sabbath day reminds us that workers need rest too. It's not just something the people owed God, but it's something they actually owed each other. When they're slaves in Egypt, the Israelites never had a chance to rest. And God doesn't want that sin repeated in Israel. Workers, including the household servants, need to be refreshed by celebrating a weekly Sabbath. So the Sabbath laws that are followed by this verse, verse 13, seems as a conclusion for this whole section of Exodus. At The beginning of this section, God said to Moses, uh, Exodus twenty-one-one. now these are the rules you shall set before them. And the next three chapters, called the Book of the Covenant, have this long list of regulations. A couple weeks ago, Dave Doris went through a number of them, and uh, they dealt with work and slavery and injury and property and sex and money and poverty and justice. And then at the end of it all, we come to verse 13. It says, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And I think what God's saying is he's really not interested in partial obedience, God hasn't given us the freedom to choose which laws we want to keep and which laws we don't. He's the only God, the sole supreme deity, who rules over heaven and earth and rightfully demands total obedience. There's one God, we have one life to give him, and he wants it to be used for his glory. So how are God's people supposed to do that? That sounds like a fairly big assignment. Well, God gives them reminders and so three times a year they went to a feast of remembrance where they would be reminded of what God did for them and they'd be reminded of what they were supposed to do for God. And these feasts of remembrance are known as pilgrim feasts. Pilgrim feasts, starting at verse 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Now, people throughout history have always gone on pilgrimages, pilgrimages. St. Augustine said our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. And as long as we're restless, we keep traveling and searching for God. And the idea of making a pilgrimage uh, to meet with God goes all the way back to Exodus. God says to his people here, verse 14, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. So the fulfillment of God's grand purpose for the Exodus, all the way back in Exodus 5 God told Pharaoh, let his people go and hold a feast in his honor. There we read Exodus 5, 1. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And so we find out this isn't a one-time event. It's supposed to be done three times a year. There's three pilgrim feasts in the Hebrew calendar. And the first came in the springtime, and it's known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Starting at verse 15, You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in it you came out of Egypt. So certainly there's more detailed instructions for observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread given elsewhere in the Bible, uh, always combined with the instructions for Passover. Passover. The two feasts are connected. Passover is when every household in Egypt offered a sacrificial lamb to commemorate that night back in Egypt when they put blood on their doorposts and the angel of death passed over them. Passover is immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread when, as the name implies, people eat bread without yeast, without leaven. And for seven days they celebrated by eating unleavened bread. So what are they celebrating? Well, since the feast coincided with the start of the barley harvest, some folks think it's some kind of harvest festival, but the biblical explanation is always theological. It's not agricultural. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a commemoration of Israel's salvation. It looks back to Exodus, when God brought his people out of bondage. For centuries, they'd been slaves in Egypt, and God delivered them. He sent, as you remember, Ten plagues against the Egyptians, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And on the night that Pharaoh finally let God's people go, the Israelites had to leave in such a hurry, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. So we see all the way back in Exodus 12. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You're ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So to remind them of this, God gave his people a feast of remembrance. Every year when they ate their unleavened bread, the feast would call to mind the exodus from Egypt. As it says in one of the Jewish liturgies for Passover, in every generation it is everyone's duty to look upon himself as if he came out of Egypt. So the feast of unleavened bread is a liberation celebration. It's a time to remember God's mighty saving work in history. In some ways, it's similar to Good Friday or Easter. We're not biblically required to observe those days, but when we do, we look back to the crucifixion and the resurrection. We remember God's mighty saving work in history. In the same way, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a commemoration of salvation. Second feast comes a month or two later, early summer. Feast of harvest, more commonly known as the feast of first fruits. Feast of first fruits. This one is tied to the agricultural cycle. Verse 16, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. Now this feast is carefully timed. The grains ready for harvest, the Israelites would take the first sheaf of wheat And according to Leviticus 23, they would wave it before the Lord as a way of acknowledging that the whole harvest comes from him. It's done on the day after the Sabbath. But that's only the beginning. Then they would count off seven full weeks, which explains why the celebration has another name called the Feast of Weeks. And then on the 50th day, the people would bring an offering to God. The main thing they offered was bread. But not unleavened bread this time, but leavened bread representing the fullness of the harvest, and they would also make sacrifices—a number of sacrifices as the law required. In Leviticus 23, it tells us, "You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two lengths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven, as first fruits to the Lord." And you shall present with the bread seven lambs, a year old, without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. So that's ten animals. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offerings, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. So now up to thirteen animals. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, and you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generation. So actually the first uh, the feast of first fruits is supposed to be a joyful celebration. The Israelites offer a variety of sacrifices to God, a burn offering, a grain offering, a drink offering, a peace offering, a wave offering, all first fruits given to the Lord out of deep gratitude. And they rest from all their work, and they gathered for public worship, praising God as their provider, thanking him for daily bread. So that's the second feast. It's basically at the beginning of the harvest time. Third feast also connected to the harvest, except it comes later in the autumn, seven months after Passover. All the crops have been safely gathered. The harvest is over. This is the feast of ingathering, which is more commonly known as the feast of booths. It says there's, You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. It's kind of like the American Thanksgiving. This is the feast of harvest home. It took place after the final harvest when every stalk of grain from the field had been threshed, every olive in the orchard had been pressed, and every grape from the vineyard had been squeezed. And this feast lasted a full week, during which the Israelites lived in makeshift Booths made of uh, leaves and, and branches. And it's why the festival is called the Feast of Booths or sometimes the Feast of Tabernacles. And God said to Moses again, Leviticus 23, You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Booths looks back to God's mighty saving work in history. Essentially, the people are camping out to remind them of the story of their salvation after their escape from Egypt. The Israelites went out into the wilderness and they lived in tents. And by living in temporary living quarters for this week-long festival, they reenact part of the exodus every year. By doing this, each new generation sort of enters into the exodus experience. They become pilgrims all over again. This strengthens their assurance of salvation. And The God who saved his people through the wilderness would continue to guide them on their way. And this feast also, the Feast of Booths, is a time of great celebration. The people have been working hard. They've been gathering all the crops from the fields. And now that the work is done, it's time to rest and it's time to play. God wants his people to rejoice in a job well done. Deuteronomy 16 says, You shall rejoice in your feast you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So it's a tangible expression of their joy. They basically come, this is the big sort of of end-of-year celebration. The harvest has come. We have enough food for another year. It's also the time of year people brought their tithes. As God said in Exodus 23 there in verse 15, he said, none shall appear before me empty-handed. And the Feast of Booths is the best time of year for tithing because it occurs when God has given his people the most. And thus they had the most to give back. Again, going back to Deuteronomy 16, it says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So, we no longer keep these pilgrim feasts. Haven't done the sort of feast of booths lately, although I think it would be a lot of fun to watch everybody camp outdoors in booths made out of branches and leaves. Um, so, I probably would light up Facebook. But these feasts teach us important things about our salvation. They teach us how to respond to our salvation and how to give ourselves to God. The Israelites are required to present themselves before God three times a year. And in view of the mercy God has shown us in Christ, according to Romans 12, we don't longer offer uh, animal sacrifices, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Verses 17 through 19, living sacrifices. Since Jesus has made the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, we no longer need to bring uh, sacrifices of bread and animals. But what we can give him is a living sacrifice, our lives offered up to his service. And the regulations for the pilgrim feast help us to know what kind of sacrifice is pleasing to God. After listing the annual festivals, God gives important instructions about how they should be observed, starting at verse 17. Verse 17. It says, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, the last one is probably the best place to start because it's the hardest to understand. What's forbidden is cooking a young goat in its own mother's milk. And if there's a general principle here, it's pro-life. The source of life should never be the cause of death. A young goat is supposed to be nourished by its mother's milk, not boiled in it. And so the words of the ancient Jewish uh, scholar Philo, he writes, the God considered it grossly improper that the substance which fed the living animal should be used to season and flavor the same after its death. There's another, probably even more important reason, this practice is forbidden, because boiling a young goat in its own mother's milk is a ritual part of Canaanite worship. So this command is a safeguard against idolatry. When the Israelites celebrate their harvest uh, festivals, their feasts, they're not allowed to adapt, uh, to uh, adopt pagan practices. doesn't want them to act like the people around them. So it's a very specific don't do what the pagans do. Instead, they're offered themselves to God alone. After all, a pilgrim is someone who goes to meet with God. But what do we do when we find him? Well, the proper thing is to present ourselves for his service. The law says three times in the year, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. It says males here because men are the spiritual head of the household. But elsewhere, as we read in Deuteronomy 16, makes it clear that everybody's included. All the women, all the children, sojourners, aliens, Levites, just sort of names a broad group. And uh, it says in Deuteronomy 16, shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. It actually says that three times in Deuteronomy 16. So everyone is required to appear before God. It's a solemn assembly. It's sort of a roll call of the faithful, the people who belong to God. And therefore, all the Israelites are to present themselves to their Lord and Savior, As their sovereign Lord, God claims exclusive rights to their service. Their worship, their obedience, their service belong to him alone and not to any other uh, gods or deities. Same is true for every believer in Jesus Christ. We're called to offer ourselves to God and to God alone. Well, how are we to do this? First, we're to offer ourselves to God repeatedly. Repeatedly. God commands his people to make a pilgrimage not just once, but three times a year. The Israelites presented themselves to God repeatedly. Helps us understand something important about the Christian life. Some Christians think that giving their lives to Jesus is something you only do at the beginning of your Christian life. And once you've made a decision, uh, you can go back to living your life however you please. And you can do whatever you want. But if we claim to follow Christ, we need to keep giving ourselves to Christ. Offering ourselves as living sacrifices isn't a one-time thing. It's one reason it's vital for us to attend weekly public corporate worship because every time we gather with God's people, we present ourselves to the sovereign Lord and offer ourselves to his service all over again. We offer ourselves repeatedly. Second, we're to offer ourselves to God righteously, righteously. It's to say we're called to be holy. God says, verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. Now this regulation is associated with the feast of unleavened bread. However, it applies to other sacrifices as well. And the mention of a sacrifice reminds us that we can only come to God on the basis of a blood offering, which is what we do every time we worship in the name of Jesus Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus has made the atoning sacrifice for our sin. But what about the yeast? Why are the Israelites forbidden to offer a sacrifice that includes any kind of yeast? As we've seen, the Bible uses yeast as a symbol of separation from sin. It's a symbol for the spread of sin. So keeping yeast away from the sacrifice shows separation. Uh, from sin. So it wouldn't be right for the people to present themselves to God no matter how often they repeat it and then return to their old patterns of sin. They're called to put away unrighteousness and that's symbolized by making unleavened offerings. God wants us to lead holy lives. We offer him our best service when we're careful to live righteously. Third, we're called to offer ourselves to God wholeheartedly. God says again, verse 18, shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. This regulation is not about keeping the kitchen clean. That's not a bad thing, but that's not what it's about. It actually has an important spiritual purpose. Today, fat is usually considered unhealthy. But in the ancient world, it was the choicest, the juiciest, the best part of the animal. It actually still is. But the temptation would have been to leave some fat on the altar and come back and get it the next morning. And the reality is we face the same temptation in the Christian life. Offer ourselves to God, but at the same time hold something back. We're willing to serve God, but we want to keep something for ourselves. So we worship him on Sundays, but not in our daily work. Or we praise him in our worship, but we don't talk about him with our friends. Or we try to please him in our ministry, but not in our use of entertainment. We're willing to help the needy as long as it doesn't require us to give up our own comfort. God says, don't leave any fat on the altar. I want everything you have to offer. God wants the best we have to offer. And this is part of what it means to serve him wholeheartedly. God says to the Israelites, with reference to the feast of first fruits, verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. God wants the best of our best. He wants the best of our time and talents, the best of our work and worship, the best of our minds and hearts. He wants us to be living sacrifices continually offering ourselves to him for righteous, wholehearted service. Now, at this point, most preachers will reassure everybody that it is impossible to obey God's law perfectly. And they would say, correctly, that one of the primary purposes of the law is to convince us that we're sinners who need a savior. And of course, that is true. We cannot be saved by keeping the law. Because we are lawbreakers. We can only be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. By his perfect obedience to the law of God, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. And by his death on the cross, Jesus has paid the penalty for all of our unrighteousness, all of our disobedience. All that is true. Nevertheless, God still commands us to be careful to do everything he said. And in order to help us do that, not perfectly, we won't be perfect till we get to glory. But to help us, God sends us His Holy Spirit. And part of the Spirit's work, not the soul part, but part of the Spirit's work is to help us do what's pleasing to God. And the law shows us what to do, and the Spirit helps us do it. So what does God want us to do if we cover this whole book of the covenant, Exodus 21 to 24? He wants us to keep people safe from injury, protect their property, practice sexual purity, show kindness to strangers, care for the poor, tell the truth, pursue justice, love our enemies, take care of his good earth, and do all the other things required in his law. Now, to be honest, some of those things are really hard to do, even for Christians because they run so contrary to our sinful nature. Nevertheless, God commands us to do them. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't recommend it. He doesn't say, I think it would be a good idea if you considered this. He says, do these things. There's no wiggle room. There's no out. There's no exit strategy from God's commands says, this is what they are, do them. And most people look at him and say, that's too hard. But God enables us, because he sends the Holy Spirit, he actually enables us to do them. And he says we will enjoy his pleasure when we actually do them. So the Israelites keep three pilgrim feasts. Unleavened bread, first fruits, and booths. And each feast testifies to the grace of God. Unleavened bread reminds people the night they left Egypt and it speaks of their salvation. First fruits and booths celebrate the bounty of God's provision. The God who saves is the God who provides. And I think there's a progression here. The worship year began with unleavened bread and ends with lavish feasting. I think that says something about God and his grace. Salvation's always getting bigger and better as God piles one blessing on top of another. And God is using the feast to show his people what salvation's all about. He's giving them experiences that would teach them to look to him in faith for their full and final salvation, which he would ultimately provide in Jesus Christ. So one of the amazing things about these pilgrim feasts is each of them contains seeds of the gospel story. I could go through all three of them and we don't have time, but let's just look at the first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's linked to Passover. As I said, in the Bible, yeast represents the spread of sin. So its symbolic meaning during the Feast of Unleavened Bread is sin. And so the Israelites celebrate this feast. They have to sweep all the yeast out of their homes to symbolize holiness. God's people are making a clean sweep. You didn't know where that phrase came from. Now you do. Getting rid of the old life of sin. We do the same thing, or we're supposed to, when we come to Christ. Once we trust in him for our salvation, we have to leave behind the old life of sin. So Paul uh, writes, the Apostle Paul inspired, 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Feast of Unleavened Bread helps us understand the gospel. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins, and now we need to make a clean sweep, getting rid of sin and living righteously. The Feast of Unleavened Bread gives us a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. The other feasts point us to Christ as well, and all the offerings point us to Christ, and all the sacrifices point us to Christ. And by making all these sacrifices and all these feasts and all these offerings, the Israelites are learning something really important about the sinfulness of sin. And they're learning something really important about a savior who deals with our sin and all of its sinfulness by his own perfect sacrifice. And they're learning to look for Jesus as we see in Hebrews 9 which says, speaking of Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The feasts are rich in their teaching about salvation. Jesus Christ is the Savior God always planned to send. So already in the Old Testament, he gives his people experiences that would help them and us understand the meaning of our salvation. That Jesus is the source of our salvation, the source of our sanctification, the first fruits, of our resurrection, the Lord of the harvest, the water of life, and the sacrifice for sin. All those come from the New Testament, but they're all referring back to Exodus. Why? Because this is the gospel according to Moses. And we find it here in these obscure verses in Exodus 23. Think about that. It's time to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Teach us again the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that through the work of Christ on the cross, the sacrifice for our sin has been paid for once and for all. That Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Let us live in gratitude, in righteousness, being wholehearted, loving Jesus and loving each other. Truth be told, we're not very good at any of those things. So we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit to build gospel life into our life that we might actually live as people who know your covenant love. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.